Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. This is a cool story. This is Lady. Uh, I want you guys to, to pray for her. Her name is Amanda. She lives in, in Tennessee. And I met her through the internet, and she's got some kind of uh, terminal illness. She's actually in hospice. And uh, she... Uh, I've been ministering to her through the internet and stuff, and... Uh, she sent me this as a gift, so it's a, a blessing to have it. Um, but I'm, it's also a reminder for me to pray for her. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, a reminder to us too to kind of step out beyond ourselves and even relationships that are formed through Facebook and social media and things like that. God could use in a powerful way to minister to people and to bless people. And I'm, we all have a story. We all have things that we've gone through. In my experience, through sickness and surgeries and things like that, allows me to be a blessing to her. And so I, I trust that that's true of all of us as well. Um, how many of you guys got my message last week saying that the COVID isn't happening because I was sick? Okay, everybody did get, you guys get the text messages. So I don't need to mention that. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I really wasn't feeling good. I don't know what exactly was wrong. I kind of felt like I had COVID. I was sleeping at least 12 hours a day all week. And when I was awake, I wasn't able to function very well, wasn't able to think very well. And uh, it was very obvious to me that I needed to take a, a week and just rest. So with this passage, and so I ended up with just a, a ton of material. And, uh, and I still have a little bit of brain fog. So uh, I don't know exactly how... Uh, no, we're going to go by faith tonight, I guess. So, uh, but let's, uh, oh, one more thing. Beach Preach, right? Uh, Beach Preach was a blessing. I, I thank you guys that came. We'll do more stuff like it in the future. But I, I think it was a big success. Uh, it was awesome to see people who have never really shared their faith before or, or never really uh, done this type of evangelism, trying and doing it for the first time. That was a huge win in my book. Um, we had 40-something people from our church show up to, to, to do that kind of outreach. That's great. Uh, one guy named Jeremiah, he said, hey, I, I, I hear you. I realize I need to be born again. I want to be born again. Will you pray with me so I could be born again? So, you know, praise God for that. Uh, it would be worth doing just for him. But, uh, yeah, we'll do some more of that stuff in the future. But I thank you guys for praying. I thank you guys for making the signs. and. For you that came, uh, I know some of you couldn't, um, but maybe next time. All right. Well, if you have your Bible open to the book of Ephesians, we're continuing our study through Ephesians. And tonight, I had originally wanted to look at uh, verses 15 through 23. Uh, this is the second run-on sentence in chapter 1. Chapter 1, you have Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 through 14, you have the longest Run on sentence in the whole Greek language, 205 words in Greek, no punctuation, no nothing, just Paul uh, talking about all the blessings, all the riches that we have in God, just worshiping the Lord and just, you know, overfilled with joy, overfilled with worship and going on and on about all that God's done for him. Uh, you kind of get that sense. And now he's going to pray. He's going to transition from uh, blessing God and, and, and talking about all the blessings, the riches that we have in God and to praying for other saints, 
that they would experience these uh, blessings and riches. And this, too, from verses 15 through the end of the chapter, is another long run-on sentence. It's all one thought. It's one prayer. But tonight, we're just going to look at the first part of it. We're going to look at verses 15 through 19, and then uh, next week, there'll be more than enough for us to talk about in 19 through 23 as we look at the power of Jesus. Uh, but tonight, we're going to look at Paul's prayer, and, uh, and I think it's going to teach us a lot about prayer, uh, the priority of prayer, the way that God thinks about us, the way that uh, we should think about other people, the way that we should pray, pray and things like that. So I think it's going to be a blessed night. Uh, let me pray for us. I'll go ahead and read the verses. And then uh, let me, I'll read the verses and then pray for us, and then uh, we can get into it. But verse 15, Paul says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. I'm going to read the whole passage. We'll only look at those, that part. Uh, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, uh, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the world to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Well, God, uh, we do. We thank you. I thank you for this prayer. I thank you that we have the privilege of praying. I thank you, Father, that you hear our prayers. That is such a, a blessing and, and, and such a, a comfort to know that we get to talk to Almighty God, the, the ruler of the universe, and you hear us, you love us, you want to do good things for us. You're our Father. Our names are written in heaven. We take much joy in that, Lord. But I pray right now that you would speak to us, you would teach us, how to pray more effectively, how to love people in a greater capacity, and really your thoughts and your feelings towards us, because that's what I think this passage conveys. So I pray that you would speak to us. I thank you that it, your power is perfected in weakness, Lord, and that when I am weak, you are strong, and I, I have faith that you're going to be strong tonight on my behalf. Uh, we're trusting in the power of your spirit, Lord. We do believe you have the power to prophesy and that you do. So we ask you to do so right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have kind of a question I want to start out with. How many of you guys are happy with your prayer life? How many of you are content with your prayer life? How many of you, if your prayer, say the prayers that you made today or tomorrow, were recorded, were written down, and then passed around, to other Christians, and they got to read them, would be okay with that. Okay. Some of us would even have anything written down, you know, unfortunately. I, I doubt any of us would be too confident in that situation, right? But here's Paul's prayers, and, and, and they're recorded in Scripture. 
and they've lasted for over 2,000 years, and everybody has been able to read him. Everybody's been able to study him. Everybody's got to see who he is because of his prayer. And and I really like that because really what people pray, it, it, it really shows us who they are, right? And if we're going to grow as a Christian, we're going to mature as a Christian, we're going to become more effective uh, in serving Christ, we're going to have to grow in our prayer, prayer life. And I, I pray that tonight will help us to do that. I had this friend uh, back when I was going to USC. His name was Aaron. And uh, he was going to USC. He went for about almost a whole year. Uh, he ended up getting kicked out of the school. Or not kicked out, but almost kicked out. We got in trouble for sniping people with a paintball gun from the balcony of our uh, dorms. But anyway, um, he, uh, he, he, he dropped out of the school. He realized that college wasn't really for him. He had some job opportunity up in Oregon, and so he went up to Oregon, he moved up there, and he was up there for a couple of weeks, and then he shows up to start this job, and it fell through. There was no job for him. Um, his parents had cut him off because he dropped out of school, and he's stuck, back, stuck up in Oregon with nothing really to do, no money, and kind of in a tight spot. So he starts looking through the white pages, looking for jobs, looking for something that he could do to make some money, and he found a lumberjack business. He said, I could be a lumberjack. And he calls the number, and the guy's like, well, you know, we're really looking for someone with some experience and that. And he's like, hey, I'll, I'll work twice as hard as anybody. I really need this job. You know what? You, you can count on me. I'll do whatever you need. And the, the foreman was like, yeah, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a week. If you can show up and you could work for a week and there isn't too big of a disparity between what you could do and what the other workers are doing, you could stay. And so this guy showed up an hour early. He stayed an hour late. Everybody else would take cigarette breaks. They'd take lunch breaks. And he would just work through that. He would work his butt off all day. And, and he was like, yeah, you know, they're going to have to keep me. I'm out working everybody else. At the end of the week, the foreman's like, hey, Aaron, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to let you go. And he's like, why? Why, why would you let me go? I mean, I, I, I came early, I stayed late, I, I, I didn't take a break, I, I worked harder than everybody else. And he's like, well, your, your production just isn't cutting it. And I was like, well, how could that be? Like, I'm, I, I'm literally working extra hours. At the end of the day, I'm drenched in sweat, and, and they're not. Like, I'm, I, I can't possibly work any harder. And the four-minute dinged on him, he asked him, hey, have you sharpened your axe? And he's like, oh, you have to sharpen the axe? <laughs> and, he, and he's like, yeah, you need to sharpen your axe every day. Otherwise, you're just going to be hacking away at wood, and, and nothing's going to be happening. And, and I think that's kind of our life without prayer, is we are trying as hard as we can to live the Christian life, to obey Christ, to do the right thing, to serve God, but there's no power. And, and all we're doing is hacking away and, 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 and wearing ourselves out, but not getting anywhere. But prayer is what sharpens that axe. It's what adds the power, what gives us the might, what gives us the ability to do what Christ has called us to do. So we, we need to have a, a prayer life. Uh, we, we need to practice our prayer life. We need to uh, really get better at it. You know, prayer is really how we engage in our spiritual warfare. It's how we get into this war, this, this, this spiritual battle that's going on around us in the spiritual realm. 
everything exists in two realms. We have the realms. We have the physical realm that we see that we're a part of, that everybody's taking part in. But there's also a spiritual realm, and and the spiritual realm uh, between good and evil. It, uh, that's what's really behind everything. That's what's making everything go. Uh, that's really what reality is more of. But most people are, are, are disassociated with that. Well, God wants us to, to be in the spiritual realm. He wants us to be in the spiritual battle, and it's through prayer that we get to engage in that. In chapter 6 of this letter, Paul's going to talk about putting on the armor of God to fight, to fight against principalities and powers and uh, uh, demons and, and, and the devil, right? And he talks about the difference that we have to put on. But we put all that armor on, then go and pray. In verse 18, it says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit with this in view. Be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that the utterance may be given to me and the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Right? Paul's talking about, hey, if you're going to you know, engage in this spiritual battle, it's to pray. It's to pray for others. It's to pray for ministers. It's to pray for the gospel to go forth. You know, a boxer gets better at boxing by boxing, right? The, the way that a boxer trains to fight is, is by fighting, by, by sparring, right? They bring in other boxers to practice uh, and to spar. And I believe prayer is the same way. The only way that we're going to get better at prayer is by praying, right? by, by, by actually doing it. You could read all kinds of books about prayer. You could read sermons about prayer. And yeah, you could you, you could get some good stuff out of it, some pointers out of it. But the only way that we're actually going to get good at it is by doing it. And so tonight, we don't have uh, group questions or that. I want to uh, get done with the message. And I want to spend a little bit of time praying, practicing the things that we are talking about here. Uh, but I entitled our message, Pray Paul's Prayer for you. Paul's prayer for you. And the reason I've entitled that is because it is for you. It, it, it is for us. We need to remember that Ephesians was a, a circular letter. Verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, uh, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Most of the original manuscripts leave out the at Ephesus. It, it's blank. And the idea was that it was a circular letter, that it was a letter that would be sent to Asia Minor, and it was to go to all seven churches from the, the book of Revelation. It's supposed to be passed around, and each church would write their name in the blank, and it was to them. Furthermore, there isn't any specific information for any one church. Uh, Paul, in this letter, isn't correcting any specific thing for one church. It's a universal letter. It applies to all Christians of all times, and it applies to us as well. So this letter and this prayer that Paul is praying has direct application for us, direct application for believers today. And we could tell a lot by a person's prayers. We really can. The thing that people pray for can tell us really an awful lot about them. We we're talking about evangelism and 
and going and, and doing beach preach. I mentioned that one of the questions that's good to ask is this diagnostic question to ask, hey, if God was going to grant you one prayer, you knew for sure you could pray one thing and God was going to grant it, what would you pray for? And the reason I say that that's a diagnostic question is because the way that the person answers that is going to tell them you a whole lot about them and a whole lot about where they are with God. And I think that our prayers do the same thing. I think when we look at other prayer, people's prayers, it does the same thing. And I think when we look at this prayer, it tells us a whole lot about the person writing it. And it doesn't just tell us what the person is writing it is thinking, because Paul is writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So it's telling us a whole lot about what Paul thinks about us, what Paul's priority for us is, but also what God is thinking about us, what God's priorities for us are. Imagine if you could, if a son was listening to his mom praying, and and, and, and he just heard her and heard the things that she was praying. And she was praying for him, right? You know, that would be kind of interesting, right? And you hear maybe things like, Lord, I pray my son would get his anger under control. Or, Lord, I pray my son would stop lying and would start telling the truth. Lord, I pray that my son would stop cussing, right? This tells us a lot about the parent, where they're at, what they're praying for, what their priorities are, but also a lot about what the problem with the son is. And so when we look at this, we're going to see, like I said, what God's priority, what God's heart is for us, what the Apostle Paul's heart is for us. But we're also going to see what our greatest need is, where we need help. You know, prayer really is a, a powerful ministry. I believe it's the most important and most powerful ministry in the church. Charles Haddon Spurgeon and many Puritan preachers said that they would rather be great at prayer than preaching. That the priority was in prayer because that's where the power comes from. And the ministry of prayer is really for all believers. Everybody could do it. Everybody could be effective at it. Everybody could reap up rewards in heaven doing it. Might I remind you that Paul is in prison. He's in prison in Rome as he's writing this. And there's two prayers right here in Ephesians, this one and in Ephesians 3. There's another prayer that Paul records. We, we, we tell that Paul is constantly praying for believers as he is in prison because that is the ministry that he could do. In fact, all four of Paul's prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, there's prayers recorded in them. Paul, Paul is constantly praying for believers in prison. Uh, I have a friend, Joe Alcaraz, and I keep trying to tell him this. That, hey, you may feel like you're in a prison. You're stuck at home. You can't be doing what you want to do. You can't be serving the Lord the way that you want to be serving him. But you can be praying. You could have the most powerful ministry that there is. You could have the most effective ministry that there is. And you could be reaping up eternal rewards in heaven because of this ministry be, for being faithful to pray and to intercede for other ministries, for other believers at this same time. If you read these epistles, it's interesting to me because not once is Paul praying, hey, get me out of here. <laughs> you know, pray that God will release me. Pray that, you know, I'll have some kind of favor. Pray that it'll be easier for me. 
in prison. Pray that they'll stop beating me. Pray that they'll get better food. None of that. It's all spiritual things. For other believers, that they would be spiritually blessed. And maybe we have such a hard time rejoicing in our little quote-unquote prisons because we aren't busy serving the Lord in these prisons the way that the Lord wants us to. Maybe we have this woe-is-me attitude and we're not experiencing the power of God. We're not experiencing the presence of God. We're not experiencing the comfort of God because we're not doing what God is calling us to do, which is to pray. Look at verse 15. Paul says, uh, reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among you and the love for all the saints. He says, for this reason. For what reason? Well, that goes back to verses 3 through 14. All these blessings that Paul talked about, that, that everything he said that is ours in Christ, this inheritance that we have. Right? Verse 3 says that because we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, before God chose in eternity past. Verse 5, because God predestined us to adoption. Verse 7, because we have redemption and forgiveness of sins in the blood of Christ. In verses 9 and 10, because God has made us aware of his, his plan for the kingdom, how he's summing up all things in Christ, how through Christ everything's going to come together, and, and Christ is going to be the consummation of all things. We've been given this, this wisdom. We've been given this insight, things that Abraham and the prophets long know but weren't able to. We have the privilege of knowing because we're in Christ. Verse 11, we have an inheritance we have a future. Verse 13 and 14, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And when we look at these blessings that God has given us in Christ, we realize that they all have to do with salvation. They all have to do with God bringing us out of darkness and into light. And we realize that God is sovereign over it. That God started it in eternity past when he chose us, when he predestined us for adoption. 2,000 years ago, God bought us on Calvary Hill when Jesus died for our sins as the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And then at some point in our life, in the not-too-distant past, the Holy Spirit came and took what Jesus did and applied it to our life. And he sealed us. And we know that Jesus one day, at that last day, will raise us up again with him. But start to finish, this salvation is a work of God. And, and this is the blessing, is that we know that God is going to finish what he started. That we are going to be in heaven with him. This sovereignty over salvation. Because because of these things, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Again, prison in Rome, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus. It's been four or five years since he's been in Ephesus. He had a great ministry in Ephesus. He was there for three years. Remember, he was teaching in the halls of Tyrannus, and many came to believe. It says that the, 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 the knowledge of God, the word of God, spread to all of Asia because of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. But four or five years have gone by, and Paul's been inquiring. He, he's in prison, like I said. But in prison, he's allowed to write letters. He's allowed to receive letters. He's allowed to have guests. And no doubt, he's constantly asking, hey, what's happening in the churches? What about that church of Ephesus? What's going on there? What's going on in Asia Minor? What's God doing? And, and he's hearing, hey, there's genuine believers there. 
those people that are coming to faith and it's the real deal faith and Paul's getting excited and Paul's praying for them. We know that they're real believers because look at how they're described in verse 15. They're saying, he's having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and for all the saints. Right? You have to have faith in Christ to be saved. That's how we get saved. Right? We've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to believe in Jesus. There's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But not everybody that says that they believe in Jesus is saved, James says. James says even the demons believe. They, they shudder, but they're not saved. Right? The, the way that we know that we're saved, that we have the real deal faith, is that we love all the saints. Right? That, that we practically love God's people. We care for God's people. That's exactly what John says in 1 John 3, 14 through 18. We know that we have passed out of death and in we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know, love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So this prayer that we're going to look at is, is geared towards believers. This is how a model prayer for praying, for interceding for believers. Right? For non-believers, we pray differently. Right? We pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and grant them repentance and, and bring them to salvation in Christ. Right? These other things, this doesn't apply. You've you got to get saved before these things become a reality for you. For letter A, uh, fill in the words thanks, praise, and critical. Give thanks and praise for what he is doing instead of being critical of what he hasn't yet done. Give thanks and praise for what he is doing instead of being critical of what he hasn't yet done. The reason I say this is uh, we got to remember that, that Paul is writing about Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city. It's a port city in Asia Minor. And it is uh, like the, uh, the that day's equivalent of a Las Vegas. I mean, it was crazy. They're, they're fully pagan. All different kinds of crazy stuff was happening. Uh, listen to uh, in Acts 19, where it's talking about Paul's time in Ephesus, what it says, starting in verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic, uh, I guess it didn't give me the whole book, oh, brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So there's people practicing magic and witchcraft and, you know, crazy stuff like that in Ephesus that were coming to faith and they were, you know, burning their books. But not all of them came to faith at the same time. You know, no doubt there was other people who were coming to faith by the people who had came to faith who were still practicing such things. You know, uh, also Ephesus had many gods, including Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And Artemis would be worshipped through temple prostitutes. You would literally go to the temple and pay money and have a sex with the prostitute, 
usually you know some type of gay sex with a minor and think that you're worshiping God that way. I mean, this is how pagan this place was. And so now, so no doubt there's people that Paul is praying for here that probably aren't mature believers. And Paul knows that they're not mature believers, but he knows they're believers. And that's good enough because Paul knows, Paul knows that God will finish what he started. Right? Paul knows uh, Philippians 1.6 because he wrote Philippians 1.6, right? He who has began a good work in you will complete the day of Christ Jesus. Right? He knows that God will finish what he started. And the people don't need to be perfect or, or even great for us to give thanks for them. Think about the church in Corinth. Right? Corinth was the problem church. Just about every problem that you could think of a church having. Uh, every possible way that they could be divided, they were divided. And, you know, just, I mean, they, they were so messed up that they would have these love feasts, these uh, potlucks before communion. And, and people were getting drunk, coming early, getting drunk and eating all the good food so that the people who actually had to work weren't able to get any food. You know, and Paul was condemning them for that. But Paul, before he got any, any type of correction for the church of Corinth, he's giving thanks and he's praying for them. Philippians 1, starting in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our tendency is to look at churches like Corinth and to be critical. To say, oh, look at how messed up they are. You, you know, look at how these crazy uh, Pentecostals and what they're doing. Or, you know, look at these people. They're so rigid. They can't even, they don't even believe in the gifts of the Spirit and things like that. And get all critical. Paul's tendency is to look at churches like Corinth and to praise God and give thanks for them. Yeah, he'll offer correction, but not until he's given praise and thanks to God for them. This makes me think of Asbury. You know, for the last two weeks, I've been so convicted over this, really. I, I, I really have. I, it really hurt me that I couldn't do this message last week. I had to carry this conviction and this weight around an extra week because of it. But, you know, I, I saw what was happening at Asbury. When I heard the things on, on social media and that about how, you know, uh, that there really hasn't been a clear gospel presentation there. The, the worship leader and the head of the school are, are homosexuals and things like that. And, and I was kind of being critical and, you know, and, 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 and kind of questioning this movement of God. Well, Paul would have been given thanks. He said, hey, there's some people coming to faith. There's some people coming closer to God. There's some people worshiping God and truth there and worshiping God and giving thanks and praise for what God is doing. It's so easy to get focused on what God hasn't done and what God isn't doing yet, that we forget to thank him and to praise him and to worship him for what he is doing. You know, the prophet said, don't despise the days of small things. This, I made this very mistake with my dad. I got saved before my dad. My dad, we, we came from a very, very Catholic family. And my dad had a hard time coming out of Catholicism and, and truly confessing Christ. Uh, he, he felt like doing so was saying that his parents were wrong and, 
and, and, and all of that. I understand it. But my dad finally started coming to church with me and my mom and started coming here and, you know, and, and we'd even start talking about God a little bit more and things like that. But all I would do is harp on him, Dad, you're still drinking. You're, you're drinking too much. You're, you're doing this. Christians don't do that. And that is 100% the wrong attitude. It, that hurt me. It just gave me a more critical heart, and it drove him further away. The right thing to do would be to praise God for what God is doing. Praise God for the changes in his heart that I do see. Back when I was in the pastor's school, uh, Brian Burdison, he gave me this book, and it was called God's Forever Family. It was a really interesting book. It was a historical book. It, it chronicled the Jesus people movement, right? The, the hippie days. And a lot of it had to do with Calvary Chapel. And there was some really, really interesting and crazy stories in this book. I, I remember this one story. There was this group of friends, and a couple of them had become Christians, and were praying that their, their one friend would become a Christian too. And they're praying and praying, and, and this guy's kind of making fun of them and not really going anywhere. And then one day they talk into going to one of the, the concerts in the tent, you know, the, the outreaches. And so their friend goes, and he hears the gospel, and they, they give an invitation to come up. And he's like, darts out of his seat. He's the first one up there, right? And they get all excited. Like, praise God, our friend got saved, right? And, uh, and they decided that they needed to celebrate that their friend actually came to faith. So they all got together and took LSD together to celebrate their friend getting saved. About an hour later uh, into this LSD experience, they find their friend. And he's tripping out. He's having a, a bad trip. And he's actually trying to kill himself. And so they, they stop him and they sit with him and kind of talk him down and make sure he gets through the night. And the next day they're talking about it and they're like, man, that was awful. Like, we, we probably shouldn't pray for our friend or celebrate our friends getting saved by doing LSD. That, that, that's a bad thing to do. A few months later, one of them was at a different church and the preacher was preaching and just a powerful message. But it was a message on stewardship and and how God wants us to be good stewards with what he's given us. And he comes home and he tells his friends like, hey, man, you should have heard this message. This preacher was on fire. It was all about stewardship. We need to be good stewards. And they're talking and they're like, you know, we're horrible stewards. Like we spend all of our money on drugs and beer. Like God probably doesn't want us to do that. Like he probably wants us to spend it on our families. And, and so they start spending their money on their families instead of drugs and beer. At no point did they ever realize that doing drugs and beer was was wrong and was sinful, right? But God used other means to get them to the place where they weren't drinking, they weren't doing drugs, that they were walking with him. And these guys are now, have been in ministry for 40, 50 years and have been faithful to the Lord. You see, God's going to work differently in each one of us. And he's going to attack different sins in different times. And, 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 and he's doing a unique work in each one of us. And instead of looking at the thing that he's not doing and being critical over it, we need to look at what he's doing and praise him for it and encourage that person. Hey, God's doing this in your life. That's awesome, man. Get into it. Do more of that. Amen. So we also see here that we need to pray both uh, spontaneously and scheduled. In verse 16, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. He says, I don't cease giving thanks for you. First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Right? This doesn't mean that we're praying every second of every day. This just means that we have a, 
a lifestyle of prayer that we're going through our life and when anything's happening we're interpreting it through prayer you know something happens and you're praying you see someone hurting and your first reaction is to pray for that person you come into a situation your first reaction is to pray god give me wisdom how do i respond you're praying every opportunity you can and 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 this is a spontaneous prayer it's it's praying as these things come up in our life and we need that but he also says while well, making mention of you in my prayers this probably has to do with uh, a jewish custom you see the jews would pray three times a day they would pray morning prayers noon prayers and evening prayers remember in the book of daniel uh daniel his friend hananiah mishael and azariah these four jewish boys are taken from judah to babylon in the captivity and God just gives them extraordinary wisdom. God blesses them. And, and they stand out. They're in the king's council. They're in the king's court. And, and, and they stand out amongst all the other guys that are, that are serving the king, all the other counselors of the king. And because of that, these other counselors of the king are jealous of Daniel, Ananias, Mishael, and Azariah. And they're trying to figure out ways to get rid of them. They hate them because they're Christians. Maybe God or someone at your work feels that way about you. Like, man, this Christian, and they're just, you know, they have all the answers and all of that. I don't know. But they were trying to get rid of Daniel. And so they said, hey, I know how we could do it. I know he's going to pray three times a day. Every day he goes up to his window, he faces Jerusalem, he gets on his knees, and he prays. So they had the king sign an edict saying, if anybody prays to anybody but the king, into the lion's den they go knowing that the next day Daniel would do that. Daniel hears about the, the edict, right? He, he hears, hey, basically they're, they're trying to trap me. And what does Daniel do? He goes up to his window, he opens it, he faces Jerusalem, and he prays morning, noon, and night. And into the lion's den he went. And God moved, obviously. You know, uh, and, and so more than likely, that's what these prayers are, the, 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 the Jewish prayers, morning, noon, and night prayers. And Paul would be going to the temple to pray. And when he would, he would have these churches on his mind. He would have these believers in Ephesus and Asia Minor, and he'd be praying for them. He'd be giving thanks for them. He'd be praising God for what God is doing in their life. So yeah, we need that spontaneous all-day prayer. But we also need to schedule times to get alone with God in prayer. Jesus did. Remember the disciples, they would look for him in the morning. And he'd be off in the mountain by himself praying. He'd wake up early because that was the only time he could get away to pray. We need to have a prayer closet. We need to have scheduled times to pray. The letter B, uh, fill in the word, greatest. Make sure we pray for people's greatest need. We need to make sure we pray for people's greatest need. Look at verse 16. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You know, we often pray when there's needs, but we very rarely pray for our greatest need. When there's needs, we're always praying. You know, it comes naturally. Hey, man, like I'm hurting. Pray. Last week I was sick. Praying. God, get this away from me. Texting people. Hey, pray for me so I feel better. Like, that's that's natural for us. But how often are we truly praying for people's greatest needs? We're going to see what those greatest needs are here in our text. 
Now, it's not wrong to pray for needs. We should do that. Jesus taught us, give us our bread, our, our, our daily bread. James says, you have not because you ask not. In chapter 5, he says, if you're sick, pray. You go to the elders and have them anoint you with oil, right? We, we are to pray when we have needs. But praying for our needs is only praying for the symptoms. It's not praying for the problem. If we look at the prayers that I mentioned earlier, remember that parent that's praying for his child? If we look at those prayers, right? Lord, I pray my son would get his anger under control. Lord, I pray my son would stop lying and start telling the truth. Lord, I pray my son would stop cussing. Well, if we, if we really examine those prayers, those are symptoms. The real problem is that kid needs to know God better. They need to see the beauty and the glory of who God is. Because if we truly see who God is and the beauty and the glory that belong to him, we'll never want to worship an idol again. If we could behold God's glory and all that he is, We'll never desire a sin. We might fall into it, but our desire is going to be more of that glory, more of God. So our prayer should be that people would come to know God better through the person of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul says in verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, there's a debate here what, about uh, what Paul means by give you a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Some of your translations might have capitalized the word spirit, uh, it, meaning that it's you know the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom and understanding. Uh, some of you uh, it don't have it capitalized, meaning it's talking about uh, a different type of spirit of wisdom and understanding. So, which one is it? Yes. <laughs> I think both are true. Uh, both of them are true theologically, at least. But I, but I think Paul is not specifically talking about the Holy Spirit here. I think he's, uh, I, I, I think it applies, and, and I'll get to that in a second. But I think really what he is praying for is that people would have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. So for letter one, or number one, we should uh, fill in the word spirit. We should pray for people to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. See, the Holy Spirit comes to our life, and he gives us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The only way that we're going to have this disposition or this identity, this desire, right, that, hey, I want God's wisdom. I want God's revelation. Right. This is what I'm after. This is this is the identity. This is the core of who I am. I'm somebody who wants to know God better. I want to know the wisdom of God. I want revelation of God. I, I want more of God. That's only going to come through the Holy Spirit. So here Paul's using spirit kind of as a disposition. Paul wants believers to want more of Christ is really what he's praying for. Right, and that's something that we could pray for everybody, everybody. Right? We should say, "Hey, I, I want us to want more of Christ. I want us to desire to be closer to Christ, to know Christ better." Secondly, we should pray for the Holy Spirit to give revelation and illumination. So, fill in revelation and illumination, and we could say that Paul is praying for this too, uh, because. Uh, 
he, he prays for spiritual uh, illumination in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. You know, hearts don't have eyes. Probably what we're thinking, right? Well, here he's not talking about a muscle. It's not some organ that just pumps blood through our body that he's talking about. He's speaking of the heart the way that a Jewish person would have. You read the Old Testament, and it, it speaks about someone's heart, and it's the core of who they are. It's all that they are. It, it's really their heart, soul, mind, and strength are all wrapped up in this. Their, their entire personhood, the, the, the center of their being, is their heart. And Paul's saying that he, he wants that, that, the core of who you are, to be enlightened, to know the truth, to know who, who God is, to know God's truth, what God wants for you. He's saying he wants our hearts, our minds, our souls, our wills to be enlightened with spiritual knowledge. And we need spiritual enlightenment or illumination to know God and his word. You see, we could just read the Bible without it, and we could learn facts. Right? We, we could memorize Bible stuff. There's a whole bunch of people going to seminary and doing that. But they're not getting the spiritual message behind it. They're not learning about Christ. They're not coming any closer to Christ. They're not coming into relationship with Christ. They're not giving wisdom for their life. They're not learning what God's will is for their life because they're not spiritually being enlightened. There's no illumination. Remember at Peter at Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus says to him? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You didn't hear that from human beings. But my Father who is in heaven has revealed that to you. You've learned that by divine illumination. You've learned that from God. In Psalm 119, David talks about the word of God. He writes about all these blessings that will come to us by studying, by applying, by obeying the word of God. One of my favorite studies I've ever done was in Bible college. and It was to read and study Psalm 119 and find all the blessings for studying, obeying, living out the word of God. There's over 150. It just, it's astonishing how many blessings there are for studying and obeying the Bible. But three times in Psalm 119, David prays for illumination. He prays for divine enlightenment. In verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. That's uh, me, uh, divine illumination. Give me enlightenment into your word. Verse 34, he says, give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 135, he says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. See, David understood he needed the ministry of the Spirit of God to understand the Word of God. That was true in the Old Testament. It's even more true and more clear in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says First 1 Corinthians 2. This is so clear about the need for divine illumination. In verse 2, this is kind of a longer text, but uh, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like Paul's saying, I, I want to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus and him crucified. Sounds kind of familiar to his prayer. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
For we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, nor ear has not heard, and that which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. That's divine illumination. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except for the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Uh, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, because they don't have divine under, uh, illumination. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ because we have the spirit of Christ. And now we all say amen, right? We say, yeah, that's true. That's great. But do we really believe it? Do we really live it? Or do we pick up our Bibles and just pick it up and start reading and say, I got this. I know what this means. Right? I, I could figure this out. I know a little bit of theology. You see, there's two reasons why we don't depend on the Holy Spirit for revelation. Number one is we have too high of a view of ourselves. Right? We think, hey, I could figure this out. I'm smart enough. I, I know how to do this. The second is we have too low of a view of God. Right, we, we we think, hey, you know what? God is is so low, I could figure him out, and, and and or two that he's not big enough or strong enough to tell me these things, to enlighten me in these. You see, pray and ministry go together, right? Ministering the word or the gospel without prayer, it, it's really dumb. You see, the expositor, the best expositors and the best evangelists in the world could do their thing. They could preach their heart out. And preach the best message they got. Greg Laurie could go and he could preach the best message that he could preach at Harvest Crusade. And nobody would respond to that message if there isn't divine illumination. So we have to pray. We have to say, God, you know, speak through this message. Prophesy through this message. Grant them illumination. Otherwise, we're just preaching a greater judgment on them. But Paul prays for revelation or illumination. And he goes on to pray for it in four specific ways. We're going to look at this here. These are the four ways we can and should be praying for ourselves and others. Uh, by the way, these four things, they're already available to believers. They're, they're things that we already have. Paul's not asking that God gives them something new or something they don't have. He's saying, hey, I hope that they come to understand what they already have. They come to realize and experience all that Christ has already given them. I like what uh, Warren Wiersbe said. Uh, he, he brought up uh, 
a guy, William Randolph Hearst. Have any of you heard of him? Hearst Castle, right? And this really, really wealthy guy. He lived in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, he was, he, he was extremely wealthy. And he had one of the biggest art collections in the world. It was estimated he owned 25% of all art in the whole world. One day he was looking through this catalog of pieces of art, famous pieces of art, and his eyes got fixed on one. He's like, I want this. I need this piece of art. And so he sends his team, these guys, to Europe to look for this piece of art. And for three months, they're going all over Europe. They can't find art. They come back, and they're frustrated. And uh, they start going through the, cat uh, the collection down in the basement. <laughs> and then they come to William Hurst, and they're like, hey, you know what? We found it. He's like, great, where was it? He was like, it, it was in your collection downstairs. You already had it. You know, he could have saved so much effort, so much resources, so much time if he just had a good inventory of what he already had. And I think that the same thing is true for Christians. Right? We're praying and we're begging God to give us things that he's already given us. And if we just would read our inventory, read what he's given us and realize all he's done for us, we wouldn't have to waste so much energy. But the first way that we should pray for spiritual insight is we need to pray that believers God better. So fill in the word God. Pray that believers would know God better. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his We need to know God better. Our knowledge of God is really the most important thing that we know. Our view of God, it really affects everything else that we do. It affects the way that we see everything else. It's really central to all three aspects of our salvation. Our justification, it's how we come to God. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God whom, they, whom you have sent. In Philippians 3, Paul's preaching, he's teaching on sanctification. And, and he says this, more than that, I count all things lost in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, and that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which has laid hold of, or that which I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the, price, of the upward call of God in Christ. Paul's saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pressing on towards sanctification, and it's going to come from knowing God, knowing Christ better. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The way that we're going to get to sanctify, the way we're going to grow in our spiritual life is by knowing God's word, knowing God better through his word. Lastly, it's glorification. Our glorification has to do with 
knowing God too. First John 3, 1 and 2. Uh, see how great of a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is, right? We'll have a perfect view of God. We'll know God perfectly. And, and that's a mark of our glorification. It's going to take glorification for us to have that. You see, D.R. Carson says, what is the greatest need of the church today? The one thing we need in the Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. Pastor Bob teaches a class called Spiritual Formation in the School of Discipleship. And the book he uses is this great book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And, and he teaches deep theology because it's through this theology that we come to know who God is. We come to know God's true character. And this isn't just head knowledge, right? This isn't just knowing things about God, knowing doctrine. No, it, it, it's speaking more than that. It's the Greek word epigenoskis, right? It, it speaks of uh, knowledge by experience. It really speaks of, uh, of relationship. Throughout the Bible, this word is used of the most intimate of relationships. In the Old Testament, how many times do we hear, so-and-so knew so-and-so and had so-and-so, right? It, it, it's speaking of the most intimate relationship there is. Remember when... Uh, Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit and J Joseph found out and was going to put her away privately because of it. It, it, it says that the, spirit, the, the angel came and spoke to Joseph and he decided to, but it says that he had not known her. Well, obviously, you know, he, he knew who she was. They were engaged. It was speaking of not having a sexual relationship, not having this most intimate relationship. And that's what God is saying that we need. We need a greater, more intimate relationship. We need to grow in relationship and intimacy with God through Christ. Think of a married couple, right? As they go through life together, they know each other better. As they go through hard times and good times and trials and things like that, they get to know each other better. They have a greater intimacy with each other than hopefully when they first got married. You know, one of the evidences that we're truly walking with Christ is that we want to know him better. If you could look at Christ and truly see him and not want to know more of that, you don't have a desire for a deeper knowledge, a deeper relationship, I really question whether you really saw Christ, whether you really knew him to begin with. How can someone say that they know Christ and be content with the knowledge that they have of him? That doesn't make any sense. That would be like, hey, meeting the love of your life and then getting married and then saying, you know, I, I, I don't really want to learn anything else. I don't really want to do anything with you. I'm happy. Just our relationship is good. You know, we'll just be married. We'll share a house. I'll share joint taxes. It's good enough. That makes no sense. Right? But that's, yeah. You know, God's like the ocean, right? A, a little child could get his feet wet and understand what it is. But the greatest explorer, the, the greatest theologians are, will never explore the depths of it. There's always more to know. There's always a greater relationship to have. If the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who has ever lived, could say, I haven't yet laid hold of that which I was laid hold of, but I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, how much more so do we need to do the same? So we need to know God better. 
Secondly, pray that believers would know the hope of their calling. Fill in the word hope. You know, the Bible talks a lot about hope. In Hebrews, hope, uh, the word gives us a hope, and that hope is an anchor for our soul. Right? The Bible talks about our blessed hope, speaking of the rapture. Right? However, the Bible uses the word hope differently than we do. We talk about like hope, like, hey, I hope this happens. I hope I could go to this this weekend. That's not what the Bible, the way the Bible uses hope. The Bible uses hope speaking of a confident expectation. Saying, hey, I know this is going to happen. I'm confident of this very thing. I'm certain of it. And here he's talking about the hope of our calling. Now we need to differentiate between the two calls. Like there's a general call. That goes out to everybody. God's calling all men everywhere to repent, to come to Christ, to receive salvation. But there's also an effectual call, a call that goes out to those whom were predestined, whom God chose before the foundation of the world, verses 4 and 5. And when they hear the gospel, the Spirit comes and quickens them and actually brings them to Jesus. Remember Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them to me. This is God's effectual call. That's God calling, literally bringing, ensuring that these people come to Jesus. We hear this described in Romans 8.30. In Romans 8.30, it's called the, the golden chain of redemption. Here's Paul is talking about the different stages of our redemption, the different stages of our salvation. And, and he's speaking about how, how God's causing these in our life and how they're linked together. He says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. So it's a factual call. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's God doing it. It's all God in that process. And if he's predestined you, he's going to call you. If he's called you, he's going to justify you. And if he's justified you, you're going to be glorified. It's already past tense. It's as good as done. So this confident expectation that God is going to complete our salvation, which he started in eternity past, which he bought 2,000 years ago, which he applied to our life, is our greatest hope. I was asked last night how God, this loving God, could allow what happened in Tennessee yesterday to happen at a church. This faithful man whose family is serving God, how could he let his child be murdered in the way that it was? Well, that's a question we hear a lot, right? It's, it's theodicy, right? If God is good and God's all-powerful, how come there's evil in the world? We know that God has redemptive purposes for it. Genesis 50, 20, God takes the world, the things that the world means for evil and uses them for good, right? We, we, we know that. But the reality is, is that we live in a sinful world. There's a reality of sin in our lives and all around us. And because of this sin, there's going to be pain. There's going to be death. There's going to be grief, and we're all going to have to deal with it. The reality is, is this isn't the way that God designed this world to be. And, and, and we're all going to have to experience the effects of sin. There's no way around it. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and, and they're going to do everything they can to make us experience the effects of sin to the greatest degree that they can. But there's good news. Jesus came to overcome the world. Where we live with the hope. We live with a confident expectation that one day we will be in glory. One day we will live in a world where this sin, the effects of sin, will be done away with. 
So sometimes there's these horrible tragedies that happen. And I believe one of it is to show the greatness of what our Savior has done for us to deliver us from this world of sin and to give us a world that's free from all of that. We'll be able to experience heaven to a greater degree. We have a greater longing, a greater desire for this hope of a world without sin. And what these parents and all those involved with that horrible tragedy need to remember is that this world won't be like this forever. Right? We have our hope of our calling. God has promised us glory. Thirdly, we need to pray that believers would know how valuable they are to God. Look at verse 18. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, if we read that fast, we think, hey, we have an inheritance, right? We got riches for us. God's got treasures planned for us, right? You know, we, we're the benefactors. But that's not what it says. It says we are Christ's inheritance, right? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Right? We are Christ's inheritance. We're God's inheritance. That's pretty amazing. Listen to what Paul, or I'm sorry, Moses says about the children of Israel. And this is right after talking about how he was up on the mountain getting the law from God, and he comes down, and they had made the calf, and were having an orgy, and he had to destroy the tablets and grind them into water and make them drink them, you know, and then go up and get new tablets. But right after explaining that, he says this. I prayed to the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you redeemed through your greatness, whom you've brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Saying that you're a people, God. He's reminding them that you're inheritance. It's kind of like the parents, right? When the kid's doing bad, and it's like, your son. It's like, no, he's your son too, right? But that's what Paul's reminding God. Hey, they're your people. They're your inheritance. Jesus says that, that we're the pearl of great price, right? Where the guy finds it and goes and sells all so he could buy the field, and that pearl could be his. That's who we are. And furthermore, it says that Jesus is in heaven, ever living to make intersection for us. He's praying, hey, I, I can't wait till they're here. I can't wait till I get inheritance. Just bring them to me, Father. Make sure they get here. Get them here in one piece. I can't wait to have them. I can't wait to spend eternity with them. I can't wait to walk with, with them without sin. He is so eager for his inheritance. He is so eager to have you. That's amazing. And imagine if we could think of ourselves this way. If we could remember the way that God thinks of us. Remember the work God places on us. There would be no more depression. There would be no more anxiety. The confidence that we would display, the faith that we would display day in and day out. Lastly, we need to pray that believers would know and experience God's power. Fill in the word power. I'm almost done. Verse 19, he says, and the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. Paul has, is saying that God has this tremendous power for the believer. That word, uh, surpassing greatness. This is a Greek word. I want you guys to learn this word. This is a great word. You know how some people get like Greek words tattooed on them? You know, this would be a great Greek word to get tattooed if you want to get a Greek word tattooed. That, that, that word surpassing greatness and the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe. 
It's hyperbolon megathos. Hyperbolon megathos. Right? God has a hyperbolon megathos power for you. That word power is dunamis power. It's the word that we dynamite for. Right? It's a power that, that can't be measured. It's an immeasurable power. It's a hyperbolon megathos power that God has for you. Next week, we're going to see God, Paul describing this power. And he's going to have to use four different Greek words to describe it because you can't quantify, you can't qualify the power of God. It's too great. You can't put it into words. You can only experience it. You know, we can make some pretty powerful things. And, and these things that we make, we can measure. Something like the atom bomb. Right? We can make a bomb that displays so much power. And we're able to measure that power. Like Hiroshima, the, the atom bomb that was dropped, it was 15 kilotons of power. That's a lot of power, right? But God's power is immeasurable, right? God created the world out of nothing. He spoke out of nothing and created everything. That's great power. In the Old Testament, he demonstrated his power by saving the children of Egypt, or children of Israel out of Egypt by the 10 plagues. That was a great display of power. But he displayed his greatest power in raising his son from the dead. He did. He, he displayed his power. We're going to see the greatest power he displayed was raising his son Jesus from the dead. See, people can make powerful things to kill and to destroy, but nobody's created a way to bring someone back from the dead. Nobody's been able to replicate that power. Nobody's been able to figure out a way how to do that. Because that's a greater power. That's a greater power that we don't, we can't do. You know, I, I used to be really into working out. A few years ago, I was working out a lot, and I was in pretty good shape. And I remember I was pressing, and I was using a 125-pound dumbbell. And I ripped out about, about 35 reps. And I got it up, and I had my chest all poked out, and I'm looking around the gym, and I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. Man, I'm strong. I got a lot of power. I got one arm, and I'm stronger than all of you. What's wrong with you? You know, that's what I'm thinking, right? And then I remembered in the Bible where it says that in Isaiah 40 that God holds all the water in the entire universe in the palm of his hand, and he doesn't spill a drop. And I'm thinking, wow, that's probably a lot of water. I wonder how much water that is. So I Google, how many gallons of water are there in the world? And Google tells me that there's an estimated 325 million trillion gallons of water in the world. I was like, I didn't even know that a million trillion existed. I didn't even know that that was a real number. And I'm like, wow. You know what? And each gallon of water weighs six pounds. So then I tried to go in my calculator and put in 325 million trillion times six. And you know what the calculator said? Error. But it's exactly right because you can't calculate. You can't put a number on the power of God. It's immeasurable. It's megathon. Or it's hyperbola megathon. Right? It, it, it's, it's greater than anything that could be measured. And this hyperbola megathon power is available to us. He has hyperbolic megathon power to break our addictions, to, to, to cure our anger, to take away our jealousy, to fix our pride. No matter what sin you're entangled in, whatever sin you need 
help with, wherever you are in life, there's a hyperthon, megathon power there to defeat it or to bring you out of it. So Paul's prayer for here is a model prayer. Notice how it began with thanksgiving and then petition, and then it'll go into praise next week. That's a good way for us to pray. So I'll ask us this. We, we look at this prayer. We look at the things that Paul's praying for. How do our prayers match up to this? The things that we're praying for, the things that Paul prayed for, you're like, oh, Joe, why you got to make me feel bad here at the end? But also look at the way that God looks at you. Look at all that he has for you. Look what he wants to give to you. Look what he wants to do for you. Right? That makes it a little bit better, right? So let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you for your spirit, Lord. I thank you that you have this hyperbolic megathon power for us. I pray that we would always remember that, Lord. I pray that we would have a better prayer life, that we would grow in our ability to pray for others, Lord. And I pray that we would take from this what your heart is for us, what your heart is for other believers, and that we would have that same heart, that we would start to pray these same things, that we pray spiritual things. We pray the word of God because that's what the power of God is. These are the praise, prayers that you can answer. So we pray these things in your name. Amen.